What's it take to get some fucking smoked turkey in this house, huh? What? Hey, friends. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. And somehow, impromptu election coverage. Or, more accurately, semi-live reactions to CNN's election coverage. Don't know what prompted that, other than to say it was a coping mechanism for the regularness of life. And I hope it was at least somewhat as enjoyable for you as it was therapeutic for me. I'm Vic Singh. On today's agenda, Johnny Cakes. With some syrup and a side of eggs, bacon, maybe some hash, and maybe a couple of those Jimmy Deans. Or the in-house links. Whatever. This episode was written by Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. Directed by Tim Van Patten. Originally aired on April 30th, 2006. HBO synopsis. Vito, still lying low in New Hampshire, is wowed by an act of heroism. AJ looks to diversify. Tony is tempted by an offer and more from sexy real estate agent Juliana Skiff. Meanwhile, Phil wants to know what's being done about Vito. And AJ visits Uncle Junior with thoughts of revenge. Kind of surprised they revealed that much in the synopsis. Uncharacteristic. We open on Tony on top of Carmela. The implication is it's likely his first time since getting the gunshot wound. Maybe the day was circled on the calendar. Or maybe the office called with the okay to take him off the DMP list. It's loud, them, and the room around them. I always thought it would be kind of fun right here to flash back to their first date. Or their first time being intimate together. Through Carmela's mind. Like a how it started versus how it's going meme. Maybe Carmela's version of how could this happen? When he pulls away, she gives him a look. Equal parts fear and intrigue. Kind of like when a team goes for it on fourth down and scores. From heterosexual sex, we cut to Vito flipping through Abatac magazine. Note, he's browsing an Ab magazine while on the tail end of a cigarette. Probably not his first either. Everything in every frame, without fail. A series of contradictions, juxtapositions, and contrasts. Blink once, and you miss it. He's listening to New Hampshire Public Radio, WEVO 89.1 in Concord. NHPR put out a really great podcast a little while ago called Bear Brook, a stripped-down true crime story. No Vinces or Spatifors were involved, though. We hear that New Hampshire is called the Granite State. That's in part because of all the granite quarries there. Great place to bury stuff. Well, inactive quarries anyway. Some say the nickname can be attributed to the state's rigid tradition of a frugal government. Don't tread on me. The Gadsden flag mindset. 
Vito hears trucks outside and hops up like that inner two-year-old inside us, running from one side of the house to the other every time a siren is audible. The storyline is unfolding before our very eyes. It seemed intriguing enough that it looks like he was heading down as he cuts out of the frame. Now, in his neck of the woods, back home, fire trucks are dime a dozen. But here? It's must-see theater now? Couldn't help but also see this as a warning sign. Jump back to Tony and Carm, now snuggling. She reiterates how blessed they are. The sheer volume of her invocation of their blessings, of course, a harbinger of things to come. At the very least, keeping us on high alert. Then we hear drums in the background. AJ? He got better. Much better. Chipping away at those 10,000 hours, it seems. Stuart Copeland over here. But not so fast. We see three guys leaving his room. They look to be musicians. But what am I, Stravinsky now? Speaking of Stravinsky, he said one of the most profound things ever. Something I've kept with me closely since I first saw it. A friend gave me a card in high school that had this quote. I haven't understood a bar of music in my life, but I have felt it. Few things written down have rung more true than that for me. Tony comes out, sizes up the trio, got me thinking about best musical trios, And in no particular order, these came to mind. Let me know if I missed a big one. And it's interesting. A lot of trios were featured or referenced on the show. And of course, there's that constant undercurrent of three again. So there's the police. One third of them mentioned a moment ago, Stuart Copeland. TLC. Of course, referenced in the show as Meadow and Hunter sang No Scrubs while cooking. The Bangles also had a song featured on the show. Nirvana. Whenever I hear their song, Something in the Way, I always think of Tony for some reason. The Fugees. Their track, Family Business, off the score. Aha. You know, Take On Me. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Green Day, Run DMC, more Sopranos connectivity, always, ZZ Top, Rush, Sublime, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Cream, legendary stuff all around, it seems, comes in threes. Back to AJ and his drum deal. See what I did there? Last guy says to AJ, I'll let you know. Tony calls them amigos. Hopes AJ kept them away from the silver. Classic. And a likely reference to the film, The Three Amigos. One, remember, of course, that we saw Christopher watching after Silvio took out Adriana. Sam Ash over here is selling his drums. Says he needs the cash. Blockbuster isn't cutting it. And Uber wasn't a supplemental option yet. T says, get another job. 
made me wonder how many jobs T held down at AJ's age. Another great moment to flashback, Mad Men style, and give some context to the generationally layered hypocrisy. No doubt to Johnny Sack's chagrin, Carm's got an opinion of her own. Says, go back to school. She, of course, thought he was going to community college anyway. And here, she's perhaps projecting her own shortcomings at Montclair State. AJ gives them lip service about registration timelines and storms out. Like T will later say about Silvio, AJ knows his business, Carm. And from that conflagration, we cut back to Vito and the Great New Hampshire Fire of 2006. A whole house is ablaze. Vito's there. So is pretty much every other member of the community. And then, on a motorbike and obligatory biker goggles, in poles, short order cook Jim, who we of course know as Johnny Cakes, obviously, but we're not quite there yet. The guy rolls up like Jax in Sons of Anarchy. Though his look is a bit more raw, like Munson. He's got a firefighting kit on, too. He readies, walks in, and pulls out a kid. Kind of like LeBron James walks into a fourth quarter of a game down seven and finishes with a W and a triple-double. No fucking thing. Vito's eyes widen. From fire to water. Cut to Stugatz 2. Made me wonder if this episode would complete the symbolism with earth and wind. Next. I know, but I couldn't resist. Also, a lot of time on the water lately. Getting his money's worth with this boat. Combination of that and every day is a gift, too, I suppose. Tony's new lease on life. This time it's just him and AJ. Coveted father and son time. And... Sadly, like most moments of that nature, it's spent in silence. But he's letting AJ drink beer, even offers him another one. They break the radio silence by swapping burps. We see the Verrazano Bridge in the background, the city behind it. A beautiful day at sea. Great bit of detail, sense of place, location stuff, especially. On this show. It's just glue, man. By the time the episode's over, that region is just all over your fingers and toes. AJ brings up Uncle June, still top of mind for him, specifically what they're going to do about him. Notice, of course, how he said they, like he's part of this thing now, by default, perhaps taking Tony's recommendation about getting another job to heart. Tony says he's incarcerated for the rest of his unnatural life. Note his departure from the classic expression, incarcerated for the rest of his natural life. Suggesting, of course, that Junior is an aberration, abnormal, outlier, in a bad way. T also says it's nothing for AJ to worry about. So, with that, he heads inside. To which I thought, So much for that job interview. Cut to the streets. Bert and Ernie 
I mean, Bert and Patsy are chatting up a vendor under a sign that reads, George the Butcher. That's in Patterson, New Jersey, right next to Little Italy. Still going strong, though the demographics have changed a bit. Now a far cry from the Napolitano weavers that first settled there. The Great Falls Historic District, where a lot of this was shot, is now a melting pot of culture, including prolific Bangladeshi, Dominican, and Puerto Rican populations. Note, the Great Falls nearby is also the site of some iconic scenes in the pilot, as well as Pax Soprana. Always looked a lot higher on screen, but the falls actually measure in at 77 feet. I mean, an NBA court is 94 feet, end to end. That Kevin Love can throw a quarterback pass farther than the Great Falls of the Passaic River makes it feel a little unworthy of its exalted name, Great. If the Passaic Falls were an NBA pass, it'd probably be like a lob from the top of the key, at best. In any case, vendor hands Patsy an envelope, and they're on their way. Guys are out on their grind, making collections. Yeoman's work. Procedurally, I always kind of wondered how the two split it between themselves before kicking up. I mean, is Bert just doing a ride-along? Or is he performing actual ministerial duties here? Cut to the next stop for them. A chicken coop, is it? We find out the full details of this place in a sec. I just remember this being my reaction the first time I saw it. Another envelope. Regularness of life humming along so far. And then, when the saints go marching in over here at this point, Patsy checks out a piece of ass in Sopranos parlance, walking out of a coffee shop. Then heads over to manager Dale. One of the things the name Dale was invented for was to be put prominently on a name tag of some kind, right? Patsy welcomes him to the neighborhood. Says they're from the North Ward Merchants Protective Cooperative. Don't bother looking it up. It doesn't exist. And a classic racketeering 101 scheme is underway. Patsy proceeds with his likely canned sales pitch. Transitional neighborhood, marginal types, demographics this, socioeconomic that. Bird even chimes in, says round-the-clock security is important here. That's right, Manager Dale. Pay for protection. Also, continuation from last pod, imagine Bert, a.k.a. Norman Bates here, with a knife outside your shower if you don't pay up. Manager Dale, not quite putting two and two together yet, with the naive but logical response. Isn't that what the police are for? Serious question. Is it? Patsy says police protection, as is, isn't enough. But their weekly dues will offer all the extra coverage they'll ever need. You know, make up the shortfall in our existing municipal infrastructure. Also, weekly fucking dues. 
Forget about those net 30 or net 45 terms. Accounts receivable? Not applicable here. Manager Dale, played by Jason Williams, I know, I thought the same thing, says he can't authorize anything like that. It has to go through corporate, who has 10,000 stores in the country. Broken windows and random managers getting assaulted are but blips on their radar. Now, this isn't Starbucks proper, but that, no doubt, is implied here. And it also takes you back to 46 Long, where Paulie can't believe his eyes and ears when he walks into a coffee shop. Bigger gangsters. Extortion-proof gangsters. Invisible gangsters. Whose soldiers are the ones making your coffee and spelling your name wrong. Since time immemorial. So, Patsy and Bert leave empty-handed. It's all slowly sinking in for Patsy. Bert remains to be seen. It's over for the little guy. Happy to say, in my neck of the woods, though, there are Starbucks flanking both entry and exit points. But there are also plenty of local spots flourishing. Neighborhood staples. Signals one thing to me. If you build it right, they will come. And keep coming. Right is the operative word. Anyway, what is this, Field of Dreams now? From little guys to little states. Cut to New Hampshire. Vito, or Vince, as he's being called, is headed out of his bed and breakfast. The host stops him, asks him how his book is going. That's a new one. This episode about to turn into a remake of Misery now? Vito performing the James Conn role, host doing her version of Kathy Bates? She invites him to breakfast with the other guests, at which point we overhear them talking about dishwashers, pre-rinse cycles. Recall, last time we saw or heard about dishwashers was the one full of cash that Paulie and his muscles scored, albeit ungracefully. But Vito's like, nah. I'd rather learn how to write. Or to live out the misery reference, he'd rather have his knees beaten in before engaging those snoozers. He walks down the main drag, and I love how the cut blends right to another drag. The one Satrials is on. Christopher's outside, sits down alongside Tony and Silvio, admiring passers-by. An alternate title for this episode could be Tony's Libido. Or even better, how Tony got his groove back. Silvio gets down to business. A Jason Mazzucci was down in Tampa visiting his mother. Thought he saw Vito in a Jenny Craig. False alarm. Jason, of course, is part of Phil's crew. He's there when Phil's hunting for Tony B. And he's there again when Phil beats Benny half to death. And Jenny Craig, of course, is the weight loss and nutrition company. Their bread and butter being frozen meals delivered for as little as $12.99 per day. Chris says, let Carlo do it. Take him out, that is, if Vito ever comes back. Recall, originally, Chris was into the idea of doing it himself. That's his expertise. And his release 
in some ways. But he's wised up. Says he's got enough complications. Enough problems of his own. Which, of course, makes me think of Pauly. Talking to the crooked cop seasons back. Hey, I got my own problems. With the hand up. Last thing Chris needs, he says, feds up his ass. But contrast this with how badly he wanted recognition and limelight for this thing of ours back in season one. How sick he was after Brendan Fallone got a shout-out on the 6 o'clock news. And just then, another woman walks by. Well, not just any woman. Forever Carol Hathaway from ER. This is Juliana Skiff, played by Julianne Margulies. Don't know why, but there's something about that last name, Margulies, that is so great. It's Hebrew for pearls. And it just adds a je ne sais quoi to the credit roll. And to top it all off, super talented at her craft. She's also fantastic in City Island, opposite Andy Garcia. Just rewatched that recently. And though The Good Wife wasn't really my thing, I watched season one just because of her. Skiff, definitionally, is a shallow, flat-bottomed, open boat. Will that definition superimpose itself on her? Let's see. Tony talks libido, post-injury. Says it's taken a while, but now he's got a baguette in his pants 24-7. Tony saying baguette always threw me a little. What about strato or focaccia? Always with the cultural appropriation. But let's chalk it up to a Paris brochure that must have been lying around the house, thanks to Carmela. Maybe she's thinking about another trip. Skiff crosses the street and is headed toward them. Confidence, the likes of which we haven't seen since Gloria Trillo. The guys tense up in that way we tend to do when a legitimate bombshell is homing in on our airspace. It's a terrific beat. Tony figures she's putting money in the meter. Even he's a little thrown by this. Not nervous exactly, but on guard. Again, all allowing for the majesty of her arrival to the show. She goes right up to Tony and calls him by his name. Zero discretion. Zero fucks given. Hands him a business card, Century 21 Realty. Classic show, don't tell. Cards say so much. Just like sad songs. Especially ones by... Sir Elton. She asks for a minute. Said every person with a big ask since time immemorial. They take a seat inside Satrials. Great framing. The tablecloth, the espresso sign in reverse, the dirty window. Only thing that could make it any better is if scenes from an Italian restaurant started playing in the background. Still plenty of time on the pod to squeeze in Billy Joel. After all, this is the time. All right, now that I got that out of my system, he offers her 
a cannoli. A cute double entendre, but assuming it's the real thing, is no even an option? She asks him about the building he owns at 217 Franklin, currently a Caputo Poultry, the place we saw earlier. Says she reps Jamba Juice. They want to buy the property. Jamba Juice, now known simply as Jamba, was one of the first official places I hung out at in high school. Actually, I'm pretty sure it was the first place I hung out at in high school. I know that's not saying a whole heck of a lot about Sacramento, California, but what are you going to do? It's now in the hands of a private equity shop. Like about two-thirds of the businesses featured on this show so far. Same company that owns Carvel and Cinnabon. Interestingly enough, always a tie back to this thing of ours, The Sopranos, the former CEO of none other than Blockbuster was the first buyer of the company when it was still known as Jamba Juice. He's the guy who apparently chopped off the juice from the name. Makes you wonder if maybe he had focused a little more time on his core business instead of speculative investments. AJ would have had a meaningful, long-term career with fringe benefits. She says the neighborhood's on an upswing. Cites examples. The old glove factory, just down the street, renovated. She just bought a loft there herself. Whatever happened to the loft trend? Converting industrial spaces to residential ones. I remember them in the headlines more than foreign wars and sports doping scandals during this era. It seemed like every city center across America was converting old spaces to loft-style living. Whatever happened there? Jump the gun a little. We're just a few episodes away from that line. Wait for it. So, she plunks down Jamba's offer. 175 a foot. At 1,800 square feet, that's 315,000. Tony digests that, his head framed beautifully by that legendary Satrial's green wall with the pigs. He asks if she ever buys eggs from Caputo, feels her intentions out. She says she can't stand the smell. But T's got a stink of his own. He doesn't want the neighborhood to suffer a loss like that. Nostalgia pushing his hand out against modernity. But as we'll see, everything has a price. She points out that he lives in North Caldwell. She did her homework. Also, a lot of balls. If Wegler were there, he'd say she was using the only weapon she had. You can finish the line. Tony calls it the Trek Up Guinea Gulch. Bloomfield Avenue, that is. Is it just me, or every time you hear that or see that stretch of road, you think of the way Junior says it in your head, if you don't say it that way outright? Some of this gulch, by the way, is depicted in the opening credits of the show. He turns to her, where are you from? She says upstate New York, Binghamton. I drove through there once on my way to Ithaca. As small a place as it is, call me crazy. 
But everyone knows someone from Binghamton. Ask someone you know. Say, hey, do you know anyone that has anything to do with Binghamton? I'd always take the over on that bet. Skiff says she's here in Jersey because she inherited a catering business from her parents. Only she didn't want to make Salisbury steak for the next 30 years. That steak, why does it get such a bad rap? An American concoction, it's ground beef and other filler soaked in gravy. Essentially a saucy hamburger patty. The name is attributed to a doctor from way back in the day, like Deadwood era, who advocated for meat-based diets to aid with digestive issues. Peasant food, as Vito might say. In addition to what seems like a low tolerance for Salisbury steak, and I mean, who can blame her, especially now that we know what it is, she's also got a low tolerance for boredom. On that note, she cuts to the chase. You interested? Like, don't bore me with your waffling on this. And he's interested in a couple few things. Just not at that price. Also says, he doesn't want to sell out from under the guy. Doesn't want Caputo to go kaput. But also, he's creating leverage. Speaking of leverage, cut back to New Hampshire. Vito enters the diner, where Jim's got leverage on Vito by way of his stomach. And every time he enters at this point, you're wondering, is somebody going to clip him? Leave the gun? Take the carry out? The song, that classic from the 90s, Sonny Came Home by Sean Colvin, is playing in the background as he enters. Record of the year and song of the year in 1998. Fuck's the difference. He's now been there enough times that Jim knows just what to say. The usual? Vito says he's been dreaming of those Johnny Cakes. Loaded. Another patron echoes the same. Yep, one of those fucking guys. Vito, or Vince, brings up the fire the night before. Says Jim's got balls. And impressed he does that kind of work as a volunteer. After all, where he comes from, flies pay rent. He says firefighters in his neighborhood would steal shit out of bedrooms. Made me wonder if Vito sensed a cash creation opportunity in New Hampshire. Jim asks about the book. This lie, we realize, is amorphous and exists outside the confines of the bed and breakfast. It's an airborne virus at this point. Vito says he's just not able to crank pages today. Somebody should tell him about morning pages. Jim chalks it up to writer's block. Love that term. I'm sure, like you, I've used it a thousand times. And I'm not even a writer in an official capacity. The term comes from the early 19th century, when an English poet called Samuel Taylor Coleridge described a feeling of indefinite, indescribable terror at not being able to produce work he thought worthy 
of his talent. One thing that gets me through my creative output block is imagining a rocky training montage or sitting on a chairlift in the middle of a snowstorm. I was listening in to my first grader do his virtual school as I prepared this, and sharing ideas with the class is a regular occurrence. So in that same vein, just thought I'd share that with you. They start complimenting each other. Vito says everything he makes is incredible. Jim says he could never do what Vito does. He can't even write a letter. Then the lone patron behind Vito chimes in again. After all, this place is where everybody knows your name, right? So par for the fucking course. My conversation, your conversation. Says he saw Graziano fight Sugar Ray in 1952. That's Sugar Ray Robinson. And Rocky Graziano was a former middleweight champ from New York. The fight the old patron was talking about, he lost in the third round by knockout. It was his second-to-last fight, and it was a successful title defense for Sugar Ray Robinson. Guy says he took a train to Chicago, where the fight was. Chicago Stadium, specifically. Now a parking lot for the United Center. All this insight because he thinks he'd be a worthwhile interview for the book. And Vito obliges him with a maybe. Jim says he thought he was writing a book about Rocky Marciano, to which Vito ably audibles. Well, you can't talk about one without talking about the other. To which I say, well then, sir, you can't fucking exclude Rocky Balboa either. Or as Rocky himself might say in two, neither. Or later in Rocky IV, not either. To the three people that got that, you're my people. Marciano, of course, was a heavyweight, not a middleweight. Key difference with Graziano. Also went undefeated for his career. Though a few of his title defenses might have made Mickey Goldmill shrug. They was bums. At this point, the old guy's fully committed. Now that was a tragic death, he says. What year did he fight Joe Lewis? 49? Vito can barely keep it together. Jim corrects him, 1951. Says he looked him up on the internet after he told him about it. That fight took place at Madison Square Garden and was a TKO in the eighth round. And the tragic death the old patron spoke of? A plane crash in Iowa. With a fact pattern that felt eerily similar to the Kobe tragedy earlier this year. Then, Jim puts his hand on Vito's. Says maybe he's working too hard. Strong eye contact between them both. You know, signals. Just then, Jim's daughter rushes in to pick up something for school. The regularness of life seeping into fleeting moments of bliss. Finally, we get a long pause as we assume the old man is going to speak again, but doesn't. Cut to Tony, strolling down the old neighborhood. From one senior citizen to another, says hi to a Mrs. Conti sitting on the side of the road. She tells him she needs his help telling some guys to turn down their music. By some guys, she means Puerto Ricans. Drops the N-word for good measure, in case the context on her was incomplete. 
Tony says he'll see what he can do, which immediately gives you the impression there will be a scene soon where they get touched up. Who might he delegate that to? As he readies to continue on his way, she says to tell Junior hello. And he walks off with the characteristic, yeah. So much for that touch-up, bringing up Junior like that. She should know better. Next, he enters Caputo's poultry, asks the proprietor to weigh in on the causality dilemma, the chicken or the egg, asks him how business is going, says meza mez, Tony does, the Italian version of com si, com sa, so-so. The proprietor says, never better, forgetting, I'd imagine, who he was talking to. You can't let your guard down with these guys. All the permutations. So Caputo says never better, on account as chickens, never hurt nobody. And Tony says, great. Time to raise your rent. Cut to AJ at Blockbuster, arguing about knife technique with a co-worker as they watch a Benicio Del Toro movie while a customer waits. Always makes me think of Chappelle's show's opening skit, Pop Copy, the training video on how to do anything but customer service. Anyway, the movie's called The Hunted. And Benicio's an assassin in that film. Perhaps a catalyst for his legendary role in Sicario. Note, AJ giving a shit about knife technique will make sense in a second. He gets a phone call from his friend, Hernan. Says he's down to hang out tonight, and he's covered. Totally fucking minted, as he says. Blockbuster bonus, you ask? Not exactly. It's going to be the proceeds from his drum sale, as we'll see in a bit. Also, worth mentioning at this point, Hernan is played by actor Vincent Piazza, who graduated from this role to play Lucky Luciano in Boardwalk Empire. Yet another example of all roads leading back to The Sopranos. Back over at Blockbuster... Co-worker Matthew gets a phone call now, too, while checking out the customer. He takes the call. Someone in his circle stepped on a nail. Clearly, that Chappelle video did the rounds. Matthew asks about Hernan. Apparently, he was a dick in high school. AJ says it was because he was a senior and they were underclassmen. Where did all this loyalty for Hernan come from? I thought about it a little for this, and... I now see how Hernan makes sense, generally speaking. Kids come home with new friends all the time. One day you wake up and there's a new person in your kid's life. Just like that. It's happening to me now. And mine are small. It's as simple as regularness of life as that. And that's why it just works so seamlessly here. Cut to Melfi's office. Tony complaining about AJ spending every night in some club in New York. If only he knew it was with the future Mr. Lucky Luciano. But AJ sleeps till noon, puts in a couple of hours at Blockbuster. He brings up his own dad, says he would have kicked him out of the house. She says, really? And he flips. Says the chopping of the finger gave him a bad rap ever since. She's fixated on that. Mind you, she hasn't said a word. Sometimes you don't need to, though. He's defensive about one slip he made about his dad, and he thinks, like most to his credit, 
that he's judged based solely off that. Very relatable, the fixation. She explains that it's different now, with kids, that is. So much information, so much bombardment. True adulthood is delayed, not like when they were younger. How true is this now? How has that conventional wisdom aged? Would her spiel still hold water today? Mind you, her statements existed in a pre-social media, pre-smartphone society. It's true. Younger people are marrying later. Starting families later, if at all. Moving out of the house later. Also, if at all. I wish the Lord would take me now, is what I would be saying if that were true for me. Kids are on their parents' insurance longer now. 26 to be exact. Wait, was Melfi Nostradamus? She does say 26 is the new 21. Cut to Melfi in therapy with Elliot. A welcome blast from the past this episode. She's talking about her father, but he pivots and asks about Tony. I'm talking about my father, Elliot. I thought you were done. It happens too often. I think that's a non-sequitur accusation. Why don't you just admit he's a gangster, he was gunned down, and you're into it on a tabloid level? A great exchange. Surprised he didn't make a note of it right there. Jot something down. Would have been a fantastic, appropriate touch. He points out correctly that she spent a lot of time talking about him last time. Recognizing that, she says... He refuses to engage. To Elliot's credit, it was weighing on her still, and it poured right out. So what if he wants to delve into a part of her that's frankly much more interesting than an aging or deceased relative? He's got his own regularness of life issues too. Maybe he wants to get his mind off woes with Saskia. She says it's a matter of time before he decompensates. That means to lose the ability to maintain mental health. Perhaps an interesting setup as the show winds down. (laughs) Elliot calls Junior Buster. Great touch. Then he goes sage. Says, the Omerta concept comes from a pre-therapeutic culture. But she says it's something else. Not that. Discrediting, in an instant, his ability or credentials to draw parallels between this thing of ours in psychotherapy. Cut to Tony watching AJ's drum buyers load the kit into their van. All this for a night at the club. Tony's a father watching the projection of their dream for their kids go down the drain right here. Cut to AJ at the club. Turns out Hernan is still a dick. He's given the valet lip service about where to park. Inside, AJ's pouring drinks. Ernan and some girls talk about AJ's dad behind his back. I believe the one on Ernan's right is played by a young Alexandria Daddario of true detective fame. Baywatch and San Andreas too. Two tent poles back when those existed. Ernan says, Capo di tutti capi. Or, boss of all the bosses. A media term of art mostly. 
popularized when the Senate investigated crimes in interstate commerce in the early 1950s. The Kefauver Commission, where Frank Costello, head of the Luciano crime family, testified. What a great link between Piazza's two characters here, Hernan on The Sopranos to Luciano in Boardwalk Empire. Also, Hernan could have been mocking T here in that they're in New York referring to a Jersey faction as the cornerstone franchise in the National This Thing of Ours Association. But it's unclear he's that clever. The other girl is Rhiannon, played by Emily Wickersham. She's introduced as Hernan's girlfriend. That's a level up for Hernan, the likes of which few of us will ever see. A bill gets handed to AJ, almost two grand. Two bottles of Cristal, bubbly fermented grape juice, true feat in marketing and branding execution. One bottle of Grey Goose, plus fees. How much do you think he cleared for his drum kit? Over or under that amount? My guess is under. On his way out, a little person approaches him, says it's an honor to have him in the club. Zazu sends his best. I remember thinking about the bird from The Lion King when he said that. Must be the owner of the place. He pauses long enough for AJ to realize he wants a gratuity. He obliges. As Hoynes said to Josh Lyman once, Welcome to the NFL, kid. Cut to Tony and Phil at night, talking about Vito. Under the same statue, Tony and Polly once talked about Furio's arrival and where Polly got a promotion the Lou Costello Memorial Park in Patterson. T calls it a victimless crime, indicating a progressive bent on this to Phil, who, if this issue had a tea party, would appear to be one of its leading crusaders. Phil says Marie and the children are victims, then says T's father would have never let this fly. Oh, he went there. He made it personal. Those Marty McFly-type digs never go over well. The comparison to a father, essentially calling someone a chicken. But Bodhisattva Tony says he sympathizes with Marie. Nevertheless, Phil doesn't get to tell him what to do because he's only an acting boss. Fundamentally, they're in agreement, he says. Let's not make a beef where there isn't one. But bottom line, he's going to do it his way. Essentially the second time he's conveyed as much to Phil. First, of course, being with Tony B. All this has the makings of the dissenting view only getting stronger. Cut to AJ getting a back rub from the girl he was with at the club. She's asking about Junior, asking about the Omerto, as she calls it. AJ says, we don't talk about that with outsiders. Gotta love the combination of flexing and signaling here. He might not be directly involved with his dad's business, but it's all about recognizing the ancillary benefits and when to deploy them. Cut to Vito heading out of the BNB. Over here's a guy frantic after losing his phone. His wife has an all-too-familiar point of view on it. 
Guys always losing something. Last week, it was the sunglasses left on the counter at the TCBY. TCBY. There's one of America's best time capsules. Vito chimes in. What'd you lose? Now he's interested in these tree trunks? Here's why. Cut to phone ringing. Incoming name, Thad McCone. Somebody in Soprano land had an axe to grind, it seems. Marie answers, it's Vito. She wants him to come home. He apologizes to her. All very sincere. Just like this new series on HBO I started watching, The Undoing. She's of the mind that he can be cured through a combination of psychiatric help and support from his family. He says he needs to figure this out on his own. In the meantime, in the den, behind the elliptical trainer, of the specificity, under the baseboard is some cash. 30K. He tries to go, but not before saying hi to his son, which naturally tears him up. Note how the camera has fully rotated to reveal kids getting pushed in swings immediately behind him. Interesting overall camera choice here too, by the way. Both cams on Marie and Vito pan slightly when they're in frame. Most shots are static on this show, but these two frames have them moving away from each other as they speak, emphasizing their distance and how it's growing further and likely permanent. Great stylistic choice. Cut to a recurring theme. Sons and daughters to strip clubs. The Bing. Mary J. Blige. Bumping. Family affair. I put this on in my car on the way in today, and that ditty hits as fresh as it did back in 2001. Crunk as ever. That beat, of course, manufactured by Dr. Dre and his protege, Michael Elizondo. Of no relation to actor Hector Elizondo, most memorable to me from Pretty Woman. Also did work on The Rockford Files and Hill Street Blues. Anyway, back to the song for a sec. It even netted a Dave Myers music video. He, of course, is the guy behind some legendary music videos. Remember those? He did Hova's Izzo, Outcast So Fresh So Clean, Dido, the Thank You video. Love that song. Dave Matthews Band, Missy Elliott, Get Your Freak On, Janet Jackson, Ja Rule, Always On Time, Usher, You Remind Me, and countless more. Blige even performed this song at the 2012 DNC. And finally, to top off its list of bona fides, this song was featured on The Sopranos. End of story, as T would say. Tony's soaking up the dancer in front of him, made even more intoxicating by the song, no doubt. The combination takes you to another place. When Juliana shows up, how'd she know to find him there? Her answer is that she's a real estate agent. But what's that got to do with anything? Besides, doesn't Sill own the club? Or do you think T owns the land the club sits on and gets rent? Very well could be. 
T offers her a drink instead of a cannoli this time. Everything's contextual. She says Jamba Juice upped their offer, $2.25 per foot. But he's still unsure. She proposes he carry the note. That way he won't get hammered on taxes. For those that aren't familiar, all that is is getting paid in installments and collecting interest along the way. Creating even more leverage for himself, T says selling now is premature. In 10 years, the building's going to be worth way more. Feels like T's a buy-and-hold kind of guy. He's in the empire business, like Walter White. But then, he goes Gary Cooper on her. You drive around America today, and everything looks the same. But the North Ward is the North Ward. Branch Brook Park, 7th Avenue, St. Lucie's Church, where all the original immigrant Italians once called home. The first ward, one of five political wards in Newark. They exist purely for electoral purposes, representation. And it's how residents identified where they lived. Back on Skiff, he's trying to have her dock her vessel in his harbor. Oh, getting cute with the analogies now. He asks her to dinner, but she sails past that lighthouse, says she has a boyfriend, is engaged. Look, I'm all about trusting people until you can't trust them anymore. Hemingway's quote and all. But this felt like a textbook kill him softly maneuver. Undeterred, he says he's married, got a wife, flashes the ring. Great understated element there. Following Mary J. Blige's lead, turns his own crunk up on it. Says he's very attracted to her. She's tempted, but says for once in her life, she's going to exercise a little self-control. That was a signal, though, that he had a shot. She gave him an in. But for now, like the strokes, she's got him under control. Cut to a New Hampshire bar. Vito sends over a pitcher of beer to Jim and a group of guys, likely all volunteer firefighters. One of the guys says he recognizes him, was watching them practice dummy drag the other day. That's an interesting phraseology given Vito's storyline, but I took them to mean some kind of firefighter practice routine. Jim calls Vince over to join them. They're breaking balls. Not too dissimilar from what he's used to with his regular crew. The butt of the jokes, one of the guys let out an Ima Sumak scream during one of their rescues. Deep cut reference to a Peruvian singer with a vocal range of five octaves. Apple couldn't program a computer with that many octaves. Still, can't touch my Mariah though. Yeah, I said it.
While the other guys go back and forth about a state muster, Jim and Vito are locked in on each other. Took that as a kind of roll call for volunteer firefighters. Gotta say, the firefighters speak this episode would make Kurt Russell bristle. Outside, Vito's impressed with Jim's bike. It's a fat boy, kind of Harley. But ironic that he rides a fat boy. Just leaving that one there. Great bit of writing. Vito says he always wanted a panhead, another type of Harley, but it never happened. And a style of bike you would think would be more fitting for Jim, given his line of work and all, but what's this? Globe Motors Harley-Davidson in Fairfield now? Jim moves in with a kiss. A lot of moves this episode. It's a theme here. Vito at first engages, but then recoils and pushes back. Jim calls him a closet queen and says not to keep giving signals. They exchange blows. No pun intended. Vito goes for a pipe. Again, no pun intended. Jim kicks it away and rides off into the night, like Benny Mardonis. Cut to Carm unloading the dishwasher. This one with dishes, not stacks of cash talking to Tony about low-fat, low-sodium salami. Tony couldn't tell the difference. She's pleased. He? Not so much. But says he's very lucky to have her, always looking out for him. Begs the question, is that a two-way street? She says, don't you forget it. Which, as we already know, sadly, he's starting to forget. There's another ship out there passing in the night. AJ comes in, or Prince Albert, as T calls him, reference to Queen Victoria's husband. The prince himself was a marginal figure at best. It's also an old-school tobacco reference that morphed into a type of prank call. And of course, he could have been talking about that other thing, though it's doubtful. Not about his son, his male heir. Speaking of, AJ says he needs clothes. Nice clothes. Tony says so we can hang out with Fernando. Carm non-sequiturs that her non has a reading disability. Before Carm can even finish her sentence, T, fuck that. Like Bob Marley. No sympathy of any kind in this household. Not his problem. But AJ says he's not just partying. He's learning. Reconnaissance. Like Drago. Studying his opponent in real time before cracking that first 1,200 pounds of pressure punch. Says with all the knowledge he's accumulated, he could run one of those places now. If they would only just stake him. In a club? Not for nothing. But it's not a terrible idea. A great hybrid between Tony's life and the straight life. And it's an evolving scene. It can morph with the seasons. Recession-proof, relatively speaking. Carm weighs in, says if you want to get into event planning, he should consider the Culinary Institute in Poughkeepsie. The tenuousness of that connection is about as bad as a Vic reach. But she's clearly trying to keep him on the academic lane, as she should. The CIA, yeah, how great is it that that's its initials? Forget Prince Albert. Imagine the phone pranks AJ could pull with that. 
Anyway, the campus is actually a little past Poughkeepsie, along the Hudson in Hyde Park, also known primarily for being FDR's hometown. Some notable alums of the CIA, or what could have been corner, if you will, Anthony Bourdain, Roy Choi, Michael Mina. Curiously, an Arthur Bucco was not on the roster. Shame. Halls would be that much more hallowed. AJ's great line for the season is next. Culinary Institute. Why do you keep talking about event planning? I don't even know what that is. Guy only averaged one per, but he made the most of them. T says he'll get him a gig at Beansies if he's serious, to learn the ropes. Carm and T are on a roll down parents tripping over themselves lane here. AJ says it's a fucking pizza place. T, who we know frees himself up to do a little global thinking every now and then, broadens things, goes macro on his ass, says it's in the service industry. But Carm says none of this matters because he's going back to college next semester. He storms off. Tony thinks a beat and says, maybe they should get him one. Maybe he'll rise to the occasion. Always love that. The boundless hope folks have for their kids, no matter what. But Carm says he's not even legal drinking age. <laughs> Tony yeah yeahs hilariously, as in, what the fuck was I thinking? But even so, that's a fucking detail kind of way. And that puts T right back in the chair, referring to the situation with AJ as a bad smell in the house. Immediately makes it about him. In fairness, this is the place to do that after all. Says arguing about AJ is no aphrodisiac. Says no wonder guys seek extracurricular activities in times like this. Melfi gives him a look, and he says not to. She always says he's projecting. This time he flips the script, says she's projecting. He says, you think I will betray Carm after she helped me so much? Reminds me of that saying, the bigger the lie, the more people believe it. Does aggressive correlate with sincerity here? No doubt some guilt after just asking another woman out. But still, he's on a bit of an apology tour with Melfi. Still probably harping on his perception of her views of his dad, and by extension, his family. Melfi wonders if on some level, he blames Carmella for AJ's problems. Oof. Deep. Cuts to the bone, that one. Most of the time, with a question like that, the asker already knows the answer. But the timing of the question is such that when asked, the truth oozes out like blood. That shit by Melfi right there was clinical. I'm bleeding, and I'm 3,000 miles and 14 years removed from it. He reflexes back. No, of course not but he's considering it. It registered. There's a definite through line there. Enough of a tell that Melfi already knows. Not willing to accept his comeuppance just yet, 
He manufactures a, she did her best, out of thin air. Then he gets real, real. At its core, therapy is transactional, right? Could you just give me some practical advice for once? Tell me what the fuck to do about my son. Well? She checks the box in her brain that says, give money's worth, but hold something back so they return. And says it's reasonable to have expectations and to be a unified front with calm. True story. My wife and I have fully embraced her advice with our seven-year-old. So far, so good. Cut to Carm going in to see AJ. He's reading Cigar Aficionado. MJ on the cover. That's Michael Jordan, of course. Can't believe I even have to say that. The No Bull interview. I read it ahead of this, and it's a pretty good one. Holds up well. They asked him to put together his own dream team, and he picked Elijah Wan at center. Loved that. Anyway, she forks over cash so he can buy a suit for job or college interviews only. Come on. She's not that naive. What gives? And this just after T said he wasn't getting any money from them. And immediately after Melfi telling Tony to be a united front with Carmella. So much hypocrisy coming at you from all sides. Gives you a stomachache sometimes. Cut to Vito walking under the moonlight with what looks to be a box of donuts. That or take out dinner. He and Jim lock eyes as he walks by the diner. I know. Enough with the preamble. Cut to AJ doing a bump off his keys. <laughs> How's that for a fucking transition? Vito with the takeout to AJ doing lines of coke. I mean, the range. Also, when did this version of AJ come about? It's kind of sprung on us all of a sudden, right? Rapid changes, bold choices, faster pace. Feels like season A is making up for lost time and is up against the clock here. But we're a long way from Mario Kart AJ. From military fit for boarding school AJ. For as long as he lives, though, I hope that wherever he is, he's able to work in a, what, no fucking ZD now? At least once a year to anyone who cares. So he heads out to the front of the club, sits down. Arnon introduces him to two guys looking to raise money for a protein drink product they're launching. Luciano's already racking up finder's fees over here. They want AJ to give a prospectus to his dad. First thought of a Fredo comparison starts here. Cut to AJ coming home relatively early because Carm's still up reading. Feels like that encounter hurt him or bothered him. People are increasingly only around him or interested in him because of who his dad is. He asks Carm to wake him up at 10, but as we'll see tomorrow, that was just coked up AJ talking. But for now, she's taken aback. That's a whole two-plus hours earlier than his current norm. The next morning, Vito's with his bed-and-breakfast cohort, enjoying breakfast. They're talking about truss bridges. Fucking bridges in Madison County over here. Vito, like Meryl Streep in that movie, is someplace else. And as fate would have it, 
He overhears a revving motorcycle engine. Cut to Carm the next morning. AJ overslept. She really that surprised, though? She woke him up like he asked, but that was two hours ago. Then, later at 4 p.m., he's laying on the couch. She finds him again. It, it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You are not even dressed. I got the impression you had something important to do. Important. Hope that wasn't a trigger word that coaxed him to act. To not rethink what happens next. Cut to AJ opening his drawer and looking intently at a Rambo knife? Those Rambo-looking knives, by the way, are made by a knife maker in Arkansas, Jimmy Lyle. A real one of those costs around 2200 bucks today. Why does he have that? Then a telltale cut to Junior in his mental hospital. From AJ to Junior. Is that a connection? That he'll end up someplace like that? Or that he plans to try and use the knife on Uncle June? Back to AJ. Also, more AJ. Uh Uh-oh. Something bad's gonna happen. He's checking in to see Uncle June. He's nervous. Oh, shit. We realize he brought the knife. He is gonna do this. That's why he was paying so much attention to Benicio's technique. He was getting ready to test that shit outside of simulation mode. That movie was his fucking YouTube channel. We can't see it, and he's not wielding it quite as seamlessly as Rambo himself either, but we can feel it on him. Note AJ's menace, his color, the tone in general. He's a character in a horror flick right here, about to turn the corner to see what's on the other side. He's got his arm in his jacket. He isn't selling it well. Wait a sec, didn't he have to go through a screener? A detector or something? How was security at a mental facility so lax? How did nobody notice? Junior sees him quickly, gets up proud, my nephew, then immediately says, take me home. I want to go home. At which point, the knife falls. Oh, how Rambo would disapprove. Sicario too. And AJ books. From his impression of Benicio, he does his best Dustin Hoffman in Marathon Man, but gets pinned to the exit door, tackled to the ground. We see a box of Yahtzee on the floor. Great prop. Took until parenthood, but I love that game. Made me imagine what kind of fights must break out during that game there, tallying up final counts and whatnot. As he gets tackled to the ground, he's screaming, he shot my dad. Sadly, his soprano gene has now fully expressed itself. Cut to Tony showing up at a local precinct. They were expecting him. Just got off the phone with Assemblyman Zellman, who got AJ off. Boom. Power in the money, money in the power. Minute after minute, hour after hour. What song is that from again? Gangsta's Paradise? Coolio? Remember Coolio? So, 
The police department is the East Halidon Police Department. Now, there's a Halidon, New Jersey, but not an East Halidon. The actual location is the West Orange Police Department. Walking to the car, Tony isn't sure what to do with AJ. You can see his head going through the paces, rubbing his face, twitching, fidgeting. When AJ says his stomach hurts, Tony goes for him, throws him up against the car, you stupid fucking moron. You realize what could have happened to you? We didn't have connections? Some cop goes by the book and they charge you with attempted murder. You hear me? Attempted murder, then what? Then what? Tony shot you! You just gonna let him fucking get away with it? I told you that's my business, not yours. And what did you do? Nothing. Zero, a big fucking jerk off. Fuck you! You're gonna break your fucking neck. Stop crying. Stop crying. I guess your heart was in the right place, AJ. But it's wrong. Come on. What? It's not in your nature. You don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You're a nice guy. And that's a good thing, for Christ's sakes. Bullshit. I mean it. So powerful. He cries. T tells him to stop. Dials down. Says your heart was in the right place. The breathing. It's so believable. Tony says it's wrong. It's not in your nature. You're a nice guy. Red, you're not like me. That's the point. That's what I want. You're a good guy. I'm very grateful. Then AJ goes off. You're a fucking hypocrite. Because right, every time we watch Godfather, when Michael Corleone shoots those guys in the restaurant, those assholes who tried to kill his dad, you sit there with your fucking bowl of ice cream and you say it's your favorite scene of all time. Jesus Christ, AJ. And you make me want to cry. It's a movie. You gotta grow up. You're not a kid anymore. You hear me? You, you, you gotta grow up. <coughs> Get in the car. I don't know about you, but I cried. The show can make you cry on a dime. Think about that for a sec. How many things can actually do that? I guess that depends in part on the person, but for the average person, not many things have that kind of stranglehold. But everything about this does. And that's why you've got to watch it with gloves on sometimes. Keep your guard up. Lest you get caught by your spouse staring at a screen with a tear in your eye. Seriously, think about this. They even put it in dialogue. You make me want to cry. They tell you exactly what they're going to do. Like Kobe would in a game. I'm going to dribble there. I'm going to back you down, post you up, shake left, pivot right, and up and under you for an and one. All before you can say the name on your birth certificate. 
Then they pull back. They rip it away with humor or the regularness of life or a combination of the two. But the way he said, you make me want to cry, take fucking notes. Then it's a movie. You gotta grow up. You're not a kid anymore. You gotta grow up. Watching this again got me thinking about a song I recently rediscovered and can't get out of my head. He's not a fluorescent adolescent anymore. At which point AJ turns sideways to hurl. There's your emotion, then snatching it away in 0.2 seconds. Again, take notes. Turns out, he's now quite literally a fluorescent adolescent. When they get in the car, T says, your mother does not find out about this. Fathers and sons. Cut from a strong and patriarchal figure to a broken and dejected one. Only it's the same guy. Tony. Love that. This time he's sitting outside Satrial's alone. Two great shots. One eye level, one slightly overhead. Showing the scale and circumference of his orbit. His phone rings. It's Juliana Skiff. She's hurried. We know how she feels about being bored at this point. Knows he doesn't want to sell, but the offer upped to two seventy-five a foot, four hundred and ninety-four thousand. Plus, he carries for seven and a half percent. She fidgets with the rubber band while he thinks. Sees the old lady across the street. Such an artful choice to convey a life flashing before your eyes, goal line decision. Throw the damn ball. Sold, he says. She says to come by her office to sign papers, but he says, how about her apartment instead? He's Sophie B. Hawkins, and damn, I wish I was your lover right there. She says, good idea. Turns out a $494,000 price tag includes one for the road, as Fran Felstein might say. But that choice of phrase, good idea. Sarcastic and amicable at the same time. Sour and sweet. Agridolce. When she puts the phone down, she realizes what she's just done. This moment for her is a great time capsule memory for this episode. One in which it seems Tony will close two deals. Cut to the diner. Vito comes in to order Johnny Cakes. Tall stack. Jim offers coffee. Vito nods, then puts his hand on his. Sometimes you tell a lie so long, you don't know when to stop, he says. You don't know when it's safe. Jim immediately gets it. I feel like I hear a version of Fool's Rush In playing in the background, but I couldn't confirm it. In which case, who's Matthew Perry in this scenario, 
And who's Selma Hayek? Cut from one version of domestic life to another, T rummaging through his closet. Carm comes up with a freshly ironed shirt. She points out he's wearing a Canali suit. Johnny Sack would surely approve, still in the GQ index of brands at the end of the magazine. What's the occasion, she asks. He says it's a real estate thing. No follow-up questions. My wife would have asked me an average of 8.3 questions if I said something like that. Instead, she calls him her handsome man. Poor Carmela. Didn't take more than a month for him to revert to his old ways. To recreate like a fluorescent adolescent himself. Especially ironic. She buttons him up for his tryst. That portion of the script was written with a calligraphy pen on parchment paper and later affixed to the typed copy. And then, they're not done yet. The camera choice to have her close up, so she's looking up at him. A one-two combination of you fuck you to the mother of his children. And we're the only ones who will ever know. Cut to Vito and Jim riding out in the countryside. They ride out to a quiet place. John Krasinski and Emily Blunt are nowhere to be found. And they have their moment. Vito's finally free. It's a couple few seconds of screen time, but it's much more than that. Always marvel at how outside the box and how ballsy a choice this was for Chase. A made guy? A captain? Disgracing their code and devoting spectacular chunks of the final season's screen time to it? At the risk of alienating a big fan base who wanted the show to bend in only a couple few directions, he told his story his way. A triple fucking Lutz degree of difficulty And the show not only stuck the landing, but it may have even changed some hearts and minds along the way. Cut to Hernan and AJ at the club. Another guy's talking off AJ's ear. As regular an occurrence as Mr. Rogers swapping jackets for cardigans at this point. Guy's upset about his landlord, some Armenian asshole. Wonders if AJ could talk to his dad to lean on him. We see full stop how this is damaging AJ. The toll it's taking. He tried to will himself into his dad's world with Junior. To maybe justify this godfather-type role he was morphing into with his friends with each year that passed. They saw him for what he was, value-wise to them. But it felt like he was struggling to see what he was himself, let alone see what they were to him a network of acolytes or people he could call on for favors should that day ever come. I just brushed my chin like Don Corleone. So, it's taken its toll. He starts to have a panic attack. We knew the circle was complete back in Army of One when he fainted. But this just after T said he's not a kid anymore. It's followed him into adulthood. Cut to Juliana's house. 
or loft, sorry. That painting on her wall. Yes, please. Sign me up for the full tour of the place. He brought champagne. Says they're celebrating. They sit down. She does what's called the Ben Franklin close. Placing the pen on the line you want someone to sign. When I was in the car business for a minute, I did the exact same thing. About 92% less effortless than her. But hey, I grossed with the best of them in my zone. By the way, she got ready for this event. She looks beyond incredible. The lipstick is fresh. Her skin is glowing. And she probably smells like a candy store. As he signs, she gets aroused by the combination of the process and the anticipation of what was going to follow. Every here is more impassioned than the next. Take it easy. She leans in, closer and closer, and then that's it. And that's that. Almost. Rounding third base, he stalls. Holds up. Third base coach gave him a clear path to home. But he ran back to tag third. As she unbuttons the same shirt Carmella buttoned up, he says stop. Throws her off him. She sells the rejection so well. The weight and sourness of it. Am I done? Done? Yeah, shining. Am I done? Uh, Yeah. I gotta go. A vicious right cross that would put most on the mat. She's still standing, but barely. As the oxygen leaves the room, we cut back to the club. AJ goes to the bathroom, splashes water on his face, looks at his face in the mirror, a lot like Tony has done over the course of the series. Meaning, we've seen this before, only in a slightly older and thicker frame. The choice to cut from that scene with Tony, who likely could very well have had a panic attack outside her place after that, to AJ is equal parts beautiful and horrifying. Fathers and sons. You hope your kid gets just the good stuff you bring to the table. But as I've no doubt learned as I've been on this journey as a father, we don't really have a choice. I heard a saying a long time ago that's stuck in my ribcage. A parent is only as happy as their least happy child. The connectivity between Tony in the last frame and AJ here is profound. It's a poem with cuts instead of commas. Then, again full circle, AJ's eyes cross and he passes out. But this one's actually not funny. A guy comes in the bathroom, says he's a doctor as luck would have it, runs through his checklist manifesto like Atul Gawande, then ends with, do you have a history of panic attacks? The bass of the music in the background. How AJ's face changes. Looks like 
Luke Skywalker seeing what's behind Darth Vader's mask for the first time. Cut to Carmella, asleep. Tony comes in, pissed off, slamming doors. Carm goes to the landing. How'd it go? What's it take to get some fucking smoked turkey in this house, huh? What? I bust my ass all day long. I come home, I want a little smoked turkey. Is that too fucking much to ask? What the fuck is your problem? He storms off. (laughs) This is so good. These last three scenes in sequence. We're back on tea in the kitchen, slamming the fridge, ransacking the place. Everything but fucking turkey in here. What was it about turkey, you think, that he was craving? Besides, it's considered an aphrodisiac, so probably not a good idea. A good night's sleep, maybe? From turkey to the poultry store. Caputo's complaining to Patsy and Bert that a juice store's coming to move in. (laughs) You hear? Goddamn juice place moving in here. What juice? Juice. Jamba juice. Perfect bit of comedy amidst the chaos. Like Lady Justice, the show always keeps the scale balanced. The problem is that those of us that keep watching it over and over again is you can get stuck on one thing. Start mythologizing your inner narrative. Caputo says Jamba juice, not Jews as he forks over the envelope. Then says T is selling the place. Patsy, in that moment, morphs into the Gap Band and starts singing. You dropped a bomb on me, baby. You dropped a bomb on me. His rendition includes that he's got a kid in college and demands eggs. He walks out, love with a capital L, that it's ending on this. Ending on the regularness of fucking life. Ending on Patsy. Last time an episode ended with him, he was driving off. I think at the end of Amor Fu. Check me on that if I'm wrong. Patsy in one of his best moments. The fuck is happening to this neighborhood? Cue the music. I'm going to move to the outskirts of town by Ray Charles. Just as we're rounding the corner, about to move toward the outskirts of this show. That's all I got. Thank you for listening. See you next time.